Hey everyone, welcome to episode 102 of Modern Webster's Wrestling Friends. As always, this desolate, desolate Welsh tones that you hear is the undisputed king of the mods, the podfather of professional wrestling, Flash Morgan Webster. Or more importantly than that, for the next 45 minutes to the hour, two and a half, however long, this wonderful conversation with the British legend that is Doug Williams goes this week. I will be your host, or as I like to see it, facilitator for these chats, discussions, gatherings. Oh, you know me, I absolutely love that word, gatherings. Or someone else called them the other day, social distance gatherings with your absolute favourites. Or as I like to call them, my buddies, my pals. Some of them I've met maybe once or twice, they're just acquaintances. But they're always, regardless of time, they're always my wrestling friends. This podcast, of course, comes to you free of charge every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, uh, Spotify, um, Podcast Bean, Buzzsprout, wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, please be sure to rate, subscribe, review. I did say last week that anyone who leaves a review on iTunes, uh, I give me a little cheeky five-star rating, leaves me a review, puts their uh, puts their Twitter handle in there, whatever. Um, or their email totally up to you, then you will be entered into uh, getting some goodies from me. Some signed photos, found some pin badges the other day, so I'll probably check them in. But yeah, um, chuck, chuck me a five-star review, help me uh, with the algorithm, knock it up, and uh, you'll be in with a chance to get yourself some free stuff. That's all I ask. Um, yeah, this podcast doesn't have a sponsor. I have been approached by one or two people at the moment about doing sponsorship, and I might... Um, do one or two things but at the moment it's kind of I don't I don't really want to be pushing you guys to go out and purchase stuff and uh, try to keep this podcast going and saying well you know you you help the sponsors and the sponsors help me when I know a lot of people are struggling at the moment financially and I know a lot of people are furloughed off and we're just kind of waiting around to see what the next step is with this so I probably won't do any sponsorship during this time, hey, might change, might change, come to a point where I'll need to do it, or I'll need to get stuff uh, funded, but uh, for now, I'm going to leave the sponsorship off, so yeah, no sponsorship, but if you do want to leave me a cheeky uh, five-star rating, then that'd be great, or if you do want to, uh, you know, pimp me out, maybe say on your Twitter, on your Facebook, on your uh, on your Instagram, any of that stuff, how much you're enjoying the podcast, you know, tell people about it, help spread the word, so then when this is all over and I am strapped for time that then potentially then I am able to still be able to do these because I'm able to pay for something to edit them and stuff like that and it means that uh, you support it that way by telling people how much you're enjoying it and then in turn then you get uh, a free podcast when this is all over because that's my aim my aim is for this to become uh, a live stay and for it to stay constantly when we're all back to normal it was done just to give you some content while we're in lockdown but I am hoping by the end of this, and it seems this way, that this will be a continuous thing for me once again, like it was when I got hurt in 2016. Yes, 2016. I came back to 2017. So yeah, um, make sure you do that. I'm on the Twitter, at Flash underscore Morgan. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Flash Morgan Webster. I'm on Instagram, at Flash Morgan Webster. And uh, if you want to drop me a little email or, uh, you know, anything like that, then please be sure to do that um, at flashmorgan at live.co.uk I tell you what you guys can help me with uh, if anyone knows anything so drop me an email and let me know about this um, so this podcast for some reason does not come up uh, when you look at wrestling podcasts um, I've had a look at it and for some reason the category that I am under is sport not sport and wrestling where I upload the podcast which is to SoundCloud does not have a option for that 
So if anyone knows any uh, podcast outlets in which would allow me to move everything over um, at the same cost or whatever that SoundCloud does and would allow me then to slot myself in to the wrestling category, that would be great because last couple of weeks I've been doing some great numbers um, and I've been looking at some of the people's uh, podcasts on the wrestling app and I feel like I might be doing pretty well on that list uh, from British uh, wrestling podcasts. But of course, when I look at it on the charts, I'm not included on that because I'm just down to sports. So if anyone has any fixes for that or knows anything more about that, um, then please shoot me uh, an email and help me out because I'd love to uh, to get myself onto that list. Because again, I feel if anyone is searching for wrestling in those and I'm not on the list, then maybe I'm missing out on a key demographic here that I could be uh, knocking into and again could help push this podcast up. And of course, will help me then keep it free and keep it going when this is all over. So yeah, please, if you have any information on how to get, uh, how to change it so wrestling is one of the categories which I come up on on, uh, on the wrestling podcast app stuff then uh, please drop me an email at flashmorgan at live.co.uk this week's guest then is the legendary doug williams i sat down with doug a couple of weeks ago i'm getting pretty good at um racking these up now i've got a few in the can i've got a few this week some cool names coming up i'm still chasing some people as well so uh yeah hopefully we get all them and it'll be absolutely smashing but yeah this week was with doug williams and it's a real cool retrospect of his career we still have about an hour and a half um, and Doug, I must say, um, is absolutely fantastic when it comes to remembering dates and times and places. So um, I had a lot of information to hand and I was trying to kind of use that to kind of get the conversation flowing. And I was using it quite a bit because, again, he's had a, a career of over 20 years, which is quite hard sometimes to kind of taper down and know where we're going. And even I, with the information in front of me, was struggling to keep up with the knowledge that was Doug Williams' brain. He was telling me dates and times and places, and I didn't have a clue. So it really is cool. If you're a Doug Williams fan, you're going to absolutely love this. Because we do talk about nearly every aspect of his career. We do talk about Japan, of course. We do talk about the early days of British wrestling and how hard it was to break in. We do talk about TNA. We talk about Ring of Honor and why he wasn't so much of a, a mainstay in Ring of Honor. He came and, you know, did bits and pieces and how he broke into America, but we don't, we do talk about why he did not stay there and the reasons behind that. And then, of course, we do talk about his retirement as well. It really is a cool conversation, real full retrospect of Doug. And uh, if you're a fan of British wrestling and have been for a few years, if you're new to it and you've heard the name Doug Williams being thrown around and, and spoke about with such high regard, then this it really is the podcast for you. And if you're, if you're someone who's just, again, come for the last two weeks because I was able to get Edge and Alex Shelley and now you're sticking around. Well, this one links completely to Alex Shelley because they did wrestle, of course, back in the days of Ring of Honor for the Pure Wrestling Championship and uh, and he is an absolute British legend. We would not have the scene that we do today. WWE would not be here. NXT UK would not be a thing if it was not for the roots that Doug Williams put down. And I think this podcast really does show how much he's done over the last 20 years, how much... Uh, hard work and how passionate he is about professional wrestling and I think it really is just a wonderful conversation so yeah I think that really does sum it up I'm just looking at the timestamp on these intros and outros it used to be um, a lot easier for me to sit and just chat to you guys because I could kind of run through about what I was doing over the last couple of weeks but I guess everyone knows that really all I'm doing is sitting in the house I am going for my weekly walks um, I am editing a music video at the moment as well which is pretty cool um, hopefully be dropping that in the next week or two. Uh, Kelly Six helped me do the majority of that. And now I'm just changing bits and pieces of it. Um, I will say this though. I don't know if anyone else is feeling this. 
I'm going for my weekly, my uh, daily walks, and I feel like I leave the house. And then for the last couple of weeks, it was great. I would just walk around, and I felt like I was, you know, leaving the house and having podcasts on and feeling productive. And uh, but I have started feeling now like my 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 walks don't have a destination. So I leave the house, and even regardless of how far I walk uh, or how long I walk, you really aren't supposed to be stopping, are you? So I feel like I go out and I leave, and maybe I'm out for an hour and a half or whatever. But I do go out and I walk. And I don't have a destination. And I think that fries my brain a little bit. I feel like I, I'm going out in regards of how far I go. I'm kind of walking around in circles. And I know that where I ended up going is exactly where I've come from. I've literally just left the house and I'm going to go back to the house. And I think that's really starting to get to me a little bit. So if anyone has any hacks on how to make that feel a little less um, monotonous, that would be absolutely great. Um, again, we're not supposed to stop. So I, I am going for these walks and I'm just continuously walking. And then feeling like I'm just coming back to the house. So that's the only thing that's really bugging me at the moment. I guess that's my week in review. I'm doing some, I've recorded some cool podcasts. I did one yesterday. Um, I've got another two, yeah, another two cool ones. This uh, tomorrow should be Thursday and one Friday. I am chasing up another one as well. So hopefully then I'll have a month's worth of podcasts recorded within this week. And then um, I'll continue to stockpile them. So even when this is, uh, this is all over, I won't have to start chasing people as much. Then I'll have quite a few done. So yeah, I guess that's my week in review. Maybe I should start doing these. Maybe I should use this as an outlet to try to uh, try to use this myself and uh, speak to people and talk to people about how I'm feeling during this time as well. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. We'll see how this feels. Um, but yeah, I guess that's my week in review. And I guess all that's left to say is sit back, relax and enjoy what is a wonderful social distance gathering with the one and only Mr. Doug Williams. Enjoy, people. Like, are you growing any weights and weightlifting stuff there? No, I don't, to be honest with you. Um, I've got like, uh, I mean, most of the stuff I do is like bodyweight exercise at the moment. Um, I go down the local park and uh, they, they've closed down all the outdoor exercise equipment, but you can still use like benches and that, you know, park benches yeah. and things, you know. So it's all about bodyweight stuff. I haven't got any weights at home at all. So, uh, yeah, it's all right. It's good for the cardio as well, you know. I, I walk about an hour a day as well to the park and back and around, so... Keeps have, me you got a, have you got a house full at the moment? Yeah, everybody's home, yeah. Yeah, four of us. Oh, yeah. God. I can only imagine. And all the animals as well. It's okay because, you know, the, the house is pretty big, so we're not on top of each other, thankfully, you know, all the time. Yeah, that's that's good. And at the end of the day, I guess, it's got to be done, hasn't it? That's it. Like, we can all go out and, like, walk the dog or, or a bit of exercise and everything. So it's not like it's not like house arrest too much <laughs> <You know. laughs> that, that is that is very true been doing it a while now though yeah this uh yeah two, two years so this is yeah over two years i had like a six month gap in between oh really yeah okay. i did say uh maybe maybe longer than six months i'm not quite sure but somebody did people have asked me why that was the case and it was just the fact that getting to shows sometimes you know how hectic a show day can be trying to get yeah. to sit down and give me an hour was just impossible sometimes now i was traveling and i I travelled down to London one day with the with the idea of getting three, one, two, three, and uh, on the one day, and went. They'll set me up for like almost a month. And yeah. I got into London, and all three, uh, two of them cancelled. And when I got to the show later that day, they moved matches round, and I had to leave on an earlier train, which meant I couldn't catch the third person. So I went to London and didn't get any of them done. Yeah, I do know you've been trying to schedule one with me for quite a while, and I think we've had a few of those those circumstances, and we were we've arranged something and then because of the situation or like you say the show being changed or whatever it might be just never happened did it so 
I can yeah. fucking understand. And I, and I, I yeah, I've, I've been reluctant for a while too to kind of do these Skype ones, and then. Um, I did one the other day with Killer Kelly and the quality was great and everyone loved it. So I was like, well, again, we've got lockdown at the moment, so it makes total sense to try to put content out and everyone's enjoying them. So that's great. Good, good. So, Doug, how I usually like to start these then, and if anyone is listening, my, my guest today, I guess, is, uh, I should explain, is uh, Mr. Doug Williams. Thank you very much, Doug, for uh, for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to be here. So, Doug, uh, how I usually like to start these then is, uh, what's your earliest memory of wrestling? Like, or what's when can you remember falling in love with wrestling? Okay, oh, well, they're, they're kind of different, really. I mean, my earliest memory of wrestling is probably when I was maybe seven or eight years old and watching the world of sports stuff on TV, seeing the likes of Big Daddy and, and things like that. Um, I was probably a, bit, a little bit too young then to appreciate it or really, you know, enjoy what I was watching. Um, that came later. That probably came when I was 13 years old and my family moved to Germany um, and we got a Sky satellite dish so we could basically watch. I mean, it was the first kind of, you know, um, issue of satellite television, the first time the dishes came out. And um, my stepfather was an electronics engineer, so he's all up with the gadgets. So he got himself a Sky dish um, so we could watch English language programming when we were living in Germany. Um, and of course, one of the main things that they aired was WWF television, um, although it was months out of date. Uh, and the first thing I ever saw was uh, WrestleMania three, um, which I mean that just blew me away as a thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old uh, watching that. Um, and that's when I really became, you know, a, a big fan of wrestling. Um, and it's it weird because uh, that's what got me hooked into wrestling, and I kind of. I came back to England when I was 16 um, and then I started going to the local shows and really getting into the to British wrestling and, 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 you know, studying it from the ground up, so to speak, despite it being WWF that got me really interested. <laughs> so it's strange. So who was you going to watch back then, Doug? Who, was, who, were, the, who were the stars that were on the, the British scene? Oh, I mean, it was, it, we're talking 89 here, 1989, 90, so... It was just about, just came off television. So it's mainly all the big stars still. You've got Haystacks, you had Daddy, you know, Rollerball, Rocco. I, I remember very clearly seeing Fuji Yamada there, you know, Jushin Liger, because um, they did a great did a great angle with him at a show where he came out um, and he offered to put any of the members of the audience um, to sleep with a, a nerve hold. So, of course, you know, loads of people stuck their arms up for the... They brought a member of the audience out to get in the ring and he put the nerve hole on and put him to sleep, you know. <laughs> um, and it was all to sell the, the move for the match later in the night, you know, where he keep going for this hold on his opponent. It was, it was brilliantly done. But I remember it clear as day because loads of kids stuck their hand up and they had to go, no, over 18s only. So all the kids, had to, including myself, all the kids had to put their arms down, very disappointed, you know. <laughs> but that was, that was, that was yeah, strange. And it was, I mean, I used to see, because they ran shows, um, twice a month at Camberley Civic Hall, which is my local hall. Um, and then they did once a month at Reading Hexagon. Um, so I used to see, I used to go to three shows, three shows a month within a, you know, like a 10 mile radius of where I lived, which is, you know, it's crazy now when you think about it, isn't it? But that was just, just the, how they're scheduling around back then. If you'd be going three times a month as well, you must've been really into it, like a big fan. Oh God. Yeah. I was, I was massive. You know, it's huge. I was, I was say, I tried to get, if I could, if I'd known, I didn't really know because obviously 
forms of communication weren't so uh, nationalised as they are now, even in 1989. Obviously, they ran Aldershot and they ran Bracknell and they ran all these other towns near me. I could have been watching it eight or nine times a month, I think, but I just didn't know, you know, like the, the, the programmes you got on the night just, just listed the show of the night, you know, it was, it was interesting. All very localised, and obviously the reasoning for that is that they ran the same cards at most of these small spot shows. The Reading was different. Reading was a big show. Cause that, that, that build, I don't know if you worked there, but that building hold, holds like 2,500 people. There's mo- most of the other shows in my local area are like three or 400 seaters. So obviously they all ran the same cards. So they didn't advertise all the local shows together because people would just see the same show over and over. Um, you know, looking back on it in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. But <laughs> very interesting. So from being this huge fan, how did you kind of realise you were able to do this yourself? Or how did that come about? Oh, well, I, when I came back from, um, before I went to, before I moved to Germany, I moved to Germany when I was 13. Um, I did judo for a couple of years. And, I, you know, I was okay. I did it just down the local club. Um, and then obviously I went to Germany. I didn't do it. I came back two years later when I was 15 or 16. Um, and I took up judo again. And, you know, partly it was inspired by my fan, fandom of wrestling, you know, watching all the WWF stuff. Um, and partly because I knew, I, you know, I was interested in it and I wanted to do some kind of sport. Um, so I came back and I started judo. Um, and, you know, within a couple of years, I was, you know, kind of one of the best best guys in my region. Um, and obviously my, my, my uh, level of fandom for wrestling has grown at the same time. So I kind of metamorphosized into uh, doing judo because I was interested in doing the sport, becoming a stepping stone, becoming a wrestler. So I kind of set my sights on being a wrestler when I was about 17 or 18. At that time, um, I was very much of the opinion that I had to be, I had to have this base in a in a combat sport like judo. You know, if I couldn't do amateur wrestling, it had to be judo or something of that nature. So I really, really knuckled down and, 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 and practiced judo a lot, you know, just so I, I knew that's what I needed to do to become a professional wrestler. Um, and, and it kind of went from there, really. And I, I did judo again, uh, judo until I was 19, 20. And then obviously that's when I, I found the Hammerlock gym. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just my, you know, I kept watching, kept up to date with WWF when I came back to this country. I got all the magazines that were available at the time, you know, all the old actor magazines. There was a shop. Uh, I went to Bracknell College through my A-levels and there was a, a local news agent, a tiny little news agent, but they stopped every single wrestling magazine you can imagine. And I used to buy like, seven or eight magazines every month, the American magazines. It was great because it opened me up to a whole new world of stuff outside of WWF. I'd, you know, I'd read about all these other great wrestlers and, and, and promotions outside WWF, and it just seemed like such a, you know, um, a different world. And then, uh, obviously, then the tape trading uh, scene sort of came about, and I saw a lot of that stuff, and that just kind of got me even more interested in becoming a wrestler myself. And especially when you see stuff outside of WWF as well, because... You know, as a, as a as a young guy, probably seventeen or eighteen, you, you see the WWF and it just looks like an impossible dream because they're all at that time anyway. They're all so big and muscular, uh, just giants. But like when you started getting the tapes, you start watch. I used to watch some of the old world class, or I'd see some mid south, or I'd see some NWA. The guys were much more kind of realistically sized, and that kind of gave me a little bit more hope. And then obviously I was watching the British stuff as well. Um, what was about that time, you know, we, we, we're talking 91, 92 now, and it kind of really died off a lot. 
Um, so it kind of gave me hope that, yeah, I could actually do this to some degree. <laughs> How did you discover Hammerlock? Uh, there was a magazine called uh, Wrestling Superstars, which was the forerunner to Palestine. So it was the original magazine that Finlay Martin came out. And he did an article about this gym in Folkestone called Hammerlock. And Andre had just opened it up and he's obviously trying to generate publicity for it. So he'd, he'd, he'd done this article with, with Finlay in the magazine. Um, and I basically just rang, rang Andre up and uh, he invited me down. I'm going to have a tryout. <laughs> well, you talk about kind of doing judo and saying that that's like, you thought you had to have this grounding to be able to go into it. Looking at yeah. like the Hammerlock style and, you know, the people who've come from Hammerlock and stuff like that, um, the big names anyway, like Andre did instill that level of realistic wrestling. So again, you popping down there for your first session and having a judo background, he must have loved you. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that helped a lot. I and mean, he was very, very high on the old legitimate side of it, even though, you know, even if professional wrestling in itself may not be only legitimate, he, he you know, his belief was you at least got to portray that aura, you know, or at least be able to handle yourself in, in a situation. And, he, and, he, and he's right, really. Um, and it was useful down at Hamlock as well, because not in the initial gym, but when we later moved to, uh, we were originally in Folkestone, and he moved later to Sittingbourne, um, it was coupled up with a um, jiu-jitsu coach. So a lot of us did jiu-jitsu classes as well, which is really, really useful um, and quite interesting as well. What was the what was the gym like when you first went down here? Because I know I've spoke to a, a lot of people uh, yeah. recently and like the the younger people have started now, like the newer generation, yeah. they've got these gyms with rings and, and crash mats. And I think I was on the, the maybe the last generation that came in that didn't have that, and we just had mats. So what was it like back then? What was uh, the setup like at Hammerlock? Well, we didn't just have mats, but what it was, it was literally an industrial unit or garage uh, on a cliffside, okay? And it was it had a ring inside, but the ring was, uh, you know, I'd be polite if I said it was, it was sturdy. It was quite a rickety old ring. You know, it was about 30 or 40 years old, hard as nails, um, and yeah, we just used to practice in there. Um, and it barely fit inside this garage. I mean, it was you probably like a couple of feet either side. Um, and then when it got too hot, we'd open up the big roller shutter door so the wind from over the cliffs would blow in and cool everybody down. Um, yeah, it was it was certainly interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's like you say, you, you probably you know, not the problem, but the benefit of that is the same with mats as well. Is you, you're you're forced to learn a more grounded style just to keep yourself uh, from being injured all the time, you know? Um, and there's no real room for doing crazy stuff anyway. You're just, just moving about and, and wrestling on the mat. And, you know, you'd run the ropes, but the ropes weren't the best. So that was always, always difficult. Um, so it, it gave you a good, you were just forced to have a good basis in, 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 in you know, in the foundation of, um, of, of wrestling, really. How long were you uh, training before you had your first match? Because, again, this is another question that it varies every time I ask people this question. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, there's kind of two debuts because he ran training shows, which were just in the gym for friends and family. Then he obviously started running proper shows. Now, I started in July 93, and I think I did my first training show in uh, November 2000. Oh, wait, November uh, 93. So July to November until my first training show. And I think the first real show I did for him was either January, February of the next year. 
So six months were you know a proper show show debut, I'd say. And you'd be six months with someone again with a with a background of judo as well, because again, him being so strict on everyone having that legitimate style, I guess he wanted to make sure that everyone he put in front of a crowd looked apart. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, everyone everyone had different backgrounds that came in. Um, you know, there was there was young kids that didn't do anything. There was older guys. There was kind of bodybuilders, and there were guys that were just totally out of shape and just wanted to be wrestlers. You know, and Ryan, you, you you know, after a certain number of months, you showed a, a certain level of commitment and and skill and ability. Um, Andre would use you, you know, because obviously the shows that he ran were for the benefit of your training as well as as just you know making money for him. He was putting it on to uh, you know to to help our experience and ability. Well, the scene was the scene was very very different back then. Again, not a lot of places, and I know that from speaking to a lot of a lot of people and mm. speaking to some of the other Hammerlock guys, I know that there was kind of this divide between like Hammerlock and the rest of the scene. So, were you only wrestling Hammerlock shows at that point? Yes, I was. I mean, but we're only talking maybe a year most. But, but you know, like you say that, but Andre struck deals with independent promoters uh, who ran camps and small venues in other places. I think what the I think what the divide was was between what you call the main circuit guys like Brian Dixon and then everybody else, you know. And and Andre, you know, he he, he struck a deal with um, you know a couple of promoters on the uh, the south southeast and the east that, that ran camp shows and, and that he'd send up four or four five guys to go and do those. So, like, in, the, in, 2000, in 1994, which is probably my first full year of working, I still did about 70 shows, most of them camp shows, which is probably the right thing to do when you're young like that, you know, experience. But it helped me work with other guys as well outside of just Hammerlock, which was good. You know, it was, it, it was useful. Yeah, 70, 70 matches back then, especially when you say that the, the scene was on a decline, is yeah. quite a lot, yeah. Well, you know, decline as such, but... Camp shows were still well in abundance because they're just they're, they're cheap forms of entertainment, you know. So they they were always going to be there, yeah. <laughs> good or bad times, yeah. So, uh, uh, in regards to like branching out and stuff like that, again, the internet's mm. become such a big thing now. People being able to put their stuff out on social media, send CVs out. Um, how difficult was it to branch out outside of those things that Andre had kind of put in place? Well, I mean, it was all kind of word of mouth and, 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 you know, kind of traditional networking, really. Once, you know, you, you meet some other guys and they tell you, oh, yeah, this, this promoter, you know, you should try and contact him. He'd be interested. And, um, I, I don't say I found it particularly difficult. You just had to you had to have the gap and go to go looking for it. You know what I mean? You had to go out there and, and present yourself to the, to, the, to the promoters. I mean, there'd be a lot of promoters I'd email or or phone up and, and they say, you know, I'll get back to you. But if I actually turned up at a show, met the promoter, had my gear with me, he, he, he booked me there and then, or, he, you know, he booked me at least to look, look at how I was before the show, and then I, he put me on the next show, you know. Um, so it's much more a, a kind of actually getting yourself out there and meeting people and, and talking to people or being recommended by one of the other veterans. You know, if you can do that, that was perfect, perfect back then. Um, and I got, guess I got a lucky break with a couple of, you know, a couple of the uh, veterans who, who who liked me, and they they put me forward for, you know, some of the some of the bigger, bigger promoters in the country at the time. Can you remember in those early years? Like uh, I always speak to everyone about this, and just kind of say like, was there a moment where it kind of clicked, and you were like, oh, I'm 
and getting quite good at this or you know a moment where it kind of you realize that the amount of bookings you were getting were coming more and more frequent uh, well you see that didn't happen for me until maybe five years in that i actually thought well i really know what i'm doing here <laughs> well obviously i i knew to some degree before because that's why i was getting booked all the time but to me it always felt like i was always making mistakes or you know, never quite get went how I wanted, despite what everyone said. But there was a point, probably 2002, 2001, 2002, where I was, I said, right, well, yeah, I know, uh, you know, I know what I'm doing here. I know what I need to achieve and how to do it. And yeah, no, you're interesting. It's interesting you say that, but yeah, you do get a point where you realise. Well, I think it takes longer for some guys than others. I feel like with me though, I feel like there definitely is still some people for me that. Even though I get to this point now, I feel like, okay, I'm starting to get the hang of this. I know what I'm, maybe I'm doing or something like that. And then you'll step in the ring with somebody and you'll feel like a complete amateur because they're so, so far ahead of you and stuff like that. And the person I always use as the example is like Pete Dunn, for example, is an absolute magician in my eyes. Whenever yeah. I get in the, the ring with Pete or whenever I speak to him, he just understands it on a level which I think I'll never, ever achieve. And then by the time I get close to that level, I'll step in the ring again with him and realize he's done another complete level again. So I guess yeah, it just must have been five years of that. Yeah, I mean, that happened with me with Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> I got in the ring with him, and then you, you just realise what a world-class wrestler actually is and what you, actually act, what you actually have to become in order to be at that level, which is something you don't understand before that point because you've never experienced it. You know? You think you know. You watch tapes, and you, you wrestle around and think, oh, yeah, is, you know, I, I, I compete with any of them. But when you actually get in the ring with a world-class wrestler, you then understand what it need, you know, what you need to do in order to become the same. You know? So that was, for me, more than anything else, that was a learning experience I got out of that. So, well, let's talk about that. That was the, the King of England tournament, right? That was, yeah. yeah. How, how, did that, how did that come about? Because at the time, I guess it was about 2001, that would have been like the biggest tournament that uh, like Europe probably had seen in some time. Yeah, I mean, that came about because um, Alex Shane had that uh, talk show on TalkSport with um, a radio presenter called Tommy Boyd, who wanted to, who wanted, Mike, is it the right show? It is the right show, isn't it? Yeah, I'm thinking, I get so confused nowadays. <laughs> That's revival, isn't it? That's it, the King of England tournament, yeah. Um, and he wanted to run a show off the back of the uh, popularity of this this. Um, you know, this wrestle talk show um, on talk sport. So th this is this is how the idea was born. Because with Tommy Boyd's name, you know, he's quite a well-known TV presenter and radio DJ. Um, you know, he, he got the backing of uh, a television station, production company to film it. And uh, and uh, it was so well promoted through the radio station that they drew a big crowd. And it was, yeah, it was probably the biggest show that I had participated in at that point. I was trying to think of that. It probably was, to be honest with you, probably the biggest crowd up to that point I wrestled in front of. Well, when you talked about the kind of getting in the ring with Eddie, and Eddie's like, Eddie's probably my, probably is my favourite wrestler of all time. Okay. Either him or Sean, but like, you talked about getting in the ring with, with Eddie and kind of realising that he's on another level. What sure. what was it? Can you put your finger on what, what it was that kind of, or how you felt at that time when you stepped in the ring with Eddie Guerrero? Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. The first thing is the, the intensity of everything he does. Like, you know, he's no stiffer than, than anyone else. He's no, you know, he's, he's not leadier. He doesn't hurt you. But everything he does, it just has such a snap to it and such a, 
an intensity to it that you could, you know, you could feel that it hadn't, you had no problem selling it. You know, despite even if he barely touched you, you could, you could, you could easily sell whatever he was doing. And the other thing was, whatever happened, he knew exactly what the next thing to do was. You know, he, he there was never any hesitation with him. There was never any kind of, oh no, what what we're going to do now? What we, you know, you know how wrestling works. It's not necessarily all pre pre planned. You know, it's not. It's not put together move by move. It's done on feeling a lot of the time. It's done on what the other guy's doing. And with him, there was never any hesitation about what was coming next. There's never any pause, you know. It was all moved to, move to the next thing, move to the next thing, you know, and, and, and just just working the match, like, so professionally, so smoothly um, that, that, you know, I just felt lost in there. <laughs> and I watch it. A lot of people say it's a great match, and I watch it, and I can see that I'm being eaten up, gobbled alive, so to speak, you know. <laughs> it might not be playing to the, the average wrestling fan. To me, I know exactly what's happening, and, and, and that's, how I, that's how I know. You know, you know, he's in another league. No, I know exactly, yeah, I know exactly how that feels. Some of those yeah. people, as well, you step in the ring, and their gas tank as well is just another level, and you yeah, just like a split yeah. second behind every, everything they're doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, how do you you know how do you follow that? You just have to improve, don't you, and get better until you're at that point. <laughs> so with that, then kind of like, did doors open for you after that match of Eddie Guerrero? Well, no, it was interesting actually because prior to that, in 2001, I'd already done that King of Indies tournament in San Francisco, yeah. which was the, um, the 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 tournament that caused the idea for Ring of Honor to be formed. And Ring of Honor had obviously already contacted me to work for their shows in 2002 off the back of that tournament. And the Eddie thing came about in between. So, um, you know, to give you a, a timeline, that King of Indies tournament was October 2001. Uh, my match with Eddie was February 2002. And then my first show for Ring of Honor was... June 2002, I believe. How but, did the King uh, of Indies tournament come about? Well, how do you how do you, how do you come about working for the? Uh, because I did a tour of Ireland with Mike Modest and Christopher Daniels, who were two of the main uh, AP. You know, the, the company in in, in uh, California was APW um, that ran the King of Indies, run by a promoter called Roland Alexander, who people might know from Beyond the Map, <laughs> but um, documentary, but. Um, yeah, Mike Modest and Christopher Daniels at that time were two of his main guys. They did a tour of Ireland with me. Um, and basically after that tour, they went back to uh, to Roland and said, you know, you've got this British guy, he's really good. Like I said, it was networking and, you know, word of mouth and, and, and what have you. Got me got me booked on that tournament, thankfully. I love um, how even though there's like, again, 20, 30 year gap between like now and then. And it seems mm-hmm. like, everything you're saying is still the exact same sentiment it was back then. Like you said, some places wouldn't book you or you get an okay off a, a, for a promoter and then you hear nothing. So you'd have to show up and I like, kind of maybe like help with the ring up or show up with your gear. And then you get a little bit of a chance. And again, same with this, it comes from being on a tour with somebody else who then is yeah, able yeah. to go back to the promoter and get you a foot in the door. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm guessing it's the same now, but <laughs> you know, you're, you're probably closer to that. From the more modern period than I am, but uh, I, the same, the same. I can't see why the same rules wouldn't apply now. You, you know, you, you you do have greater exposure now through social media, and you know, be able to put your stuff online and, and, and pointing people in the direction of that. But 
sometimes it just helps to stand in front of someone or have someone vouch for you. You know. So you kind of you went over to the Ring of Honor then. You'd wrestled Eddie Guerrero, and you were like, okay, they're going to start this this Ring of Honor thing. Did did that knock of confidence with Guerrero make you think that when you were going to step out for Ring of Honor, that it was going to kind of be very much the same, and these were going to be like the same standard of wrestlers? And if so, were they the same standard you were expecting? It didn't knock my confidence. It just made me work harder to try and be, you know, that kind of level. And um, to be honest with you, I already knew the majority of the top guys in Ring of Honor anyway, and I knew what level they were at. So I didn't have a problem. You know, I didn't have a confidence problem in that respect. And I knew I was at least of their level, you know, guys like Brian or Loki or Chris Daniels. And, uh, you know, these guys I'd all worked with new for a year or two anyway um and i i was probably i was on maybe is it third show ring of one i've done and i watched the first two so i had, a, I had an idea of the level of ability and, and what the crowd expected and then to be honest with you i tailored what i did to what i thought would be would go down well and it, it did so that was probably lucky but also it was just it's just studying and understanding what the crowd appreciate and what you can do different to everybody else so that you stand out. Um, which in my case, luckily at that time, was British wrestling because no one really watched or knew British wrestling, you know, at that point in, 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 in time. You know, kind of, the, the, the style had kind of died off a little bit because it was so, you know, the American, the American style has such influenced so, so greatly the shows in this country a lot of the little stuff had been lost, you know. Um, and it was just a case of pulling some of those little spots back and, and highlighting them, and, and, and that's what kind of got me over with the Ring of Honor crowd. I know I know. for me, like, at this point, I would have been probably, like, it would have been about two years before I would discover Ring of Honor or whatever, but you mm. were the person who, like, we'd, we discovered this independent wrestling and not known much about, again, British wrestling being out there, and we discovered Ring of Honor through, like, Loki and Red and Danielson. And you were you were that guy who we were like, wait, there's a British guy over there. And again, he's doing this style that nobody else is doing. And yeah. that style seemed to, of course, then um, lend itself and the development came of the, the Pure Wrestling Championship. Uh, were you, was that an idea that was kind of presented to you before you went on to, to win it? Or was this something that you'd heard about rumbling for a while before it became like the championship itself? Um, no, to be honest with you, I can't remember, but I only heard about the pure amount, the pure champion, pure, pure title when when they announced it. To be honest with you, um, and they asked me if I wanted to participate, and obviously I said yeah, of course. Um, I hadn't heard anything before then, um, or what you know what my influence might have been on the creation of that title, but uh, I do know that. Um, if I'd been around a bit more, I probably might have held it longer than I did. But I, obviously other things were happening and I was I was getting very busy and it was difficult. I mean, you know, it was great working for Ring of Honor, but, you know, going back all those years, you weren't necessarily getting you a working visa to go to America. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was kind of ducking in and out and, you know, I had to be a bit careful and... Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was busy over here and I was starting to get work in Europe, continental Europe and Japan. So really, I was kind of drifting away a little bit from Ring of Honor. So I couldn't commit to them as much as maybe they'd have liked me to. So 
you know, that was probably why I, you know, I was there at the beginning of the pure title and then I just kind of faded away and died off a little bit. Ian, uh, you, you talk about that and that, that little, that feeling when you say about ducking in and out, I've been there myself and I, there's no, there's nothing scarier than walking up to that immigration line and being like, oh, this is the day they turn me back. And as, as great as, as great as like, um, as great as the exposure is out in America, again, it is such it's such a toll on on your your nerves and kind of like jumping in. And you know yourself, there's a, there's a shelf life on being able to do that as yeah. well. I mean, I, I was kind of lucky that my mum lived in America for that for that period. Um, so every time I was just going to see my mum. Every time I went there, <laughs> you know, and um, didn't matter that she lived thousands of miles away from the show I was working on, but you know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. There was one point where I'd flown in, I was there two weeks, I flew back, and then I had to fly back a week later for a weekend, and I was convinced that they weren't going to, I was convinced, I was thinking, why would they let me in? Why would, I've been here, I've been away a week, and I'm coming back for a weekend, you know, why? And um, I was basically on the last flight of the day, I was the last person in the queue, and the guy just couldn't be asked, and he just let me <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, I would say you're right. Toll it, it's just not worth it, is it? At the end of the day, I don't think the exposure you get, you know, nowadays anyway, your exposure is much more globalised. You don't you don't necessarily have to do things like that. I think, and people are much more prepared to, uh, you know, book and organise you legitimately because it, it affects their business as well. You know. Yeah. yeah, and of course as well, like you talk about the scenes become so much better now and again sure. there's it's not just go to one place and, and get get your exposure. You can literally get your exposure from the smaller shows if done right. Of course, of course. When did uh when did your first tour of Noah happen? Okay, that was in May two thousand and three. So that's what I'm saying, it was like a year less than a year after I started with Rivering of Honor. Um now again, I have to thank uh, Mike Modest for that because um, I don't I don't really know why, but I he booked me on a show that he was running in California, and he had Mizawa in the main event, and he put me in the main event with Mizawa, and I always got the impression they asked for me to be in that main event, but obviously I'm never going to ask that question of anyone. But that was how it always seemed, and looking back on it, it made sense because um, Agawa, who I became great friends with, um, was uh, a, a huge British wrestling, you know, a fan of the British wrestling style. So obviously, he wanted to get in there and, and mix it up and do the old British style. And I think that's why Agawa was Mazawa's tag partner in that match. And I think that's maybe why I was put in there. Um, and I think it kind of correlated as well with they when they were in before they split Noah split from all Japan. They had a guy called a Canadian called Johnny Smith, who was, you know, uh, supposedly related to David Boy Smith or, or whatever. But he would he would he would do kind of the British style in in all Japan. And for whatever reason, when Noah split from all Japan, he didn't go with Noah. Um, he either stopped wrestling or he was injured or whatever and I think they were looking for another guy with a British style they could use um, and obviously because I got my exposure a little bit through Ring of Honor and, and what have you I think I was on their radar so that might be part of the reason I 
I got that gig, you know, which so is with, good for me. You had that match and then they kind of spoke to you or was it a few weeks after or can you remember? Yeah, they, they spoke to me on the night after the match. And um, again, at the airport the next day, I was sitting in the departure lounge and the, uh, the office guy from Noah saw me, came over and talked to me and said, make sure you send a DVD into the office. So he gave me the address, and then I set the DVD off, and probably two weeks later, they emailed me and said, we want to book you on a tour in May 2003. So I think that was around December 2002 that they that I had that match, I think. I can't remember exactly. At this point, were you 100%, before you went out there, were you 100% uh, full-time professional wrestler? No, I still had a, I still had a full-time job at that point. At that point. Um, Oh, no, no, 2001, 2002. I didn't have a full-time job, but I was freelancing in, in, in the profession that I was doing, so I could dip in and out as I wanted, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I just when I was hiring my, my work, doing, you know, um, doing uh, freelancing my job at the time. So you must have saw this opportunity with Noah as a chance to write, okay, this could be, this could be my big break, this could be me becoming that full-time professional wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because obviously they offered yearly contracts, you know, with guarantees. They didn't offer first-show jobs, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, it gives you some kind of uh, base, doesn't it? It gives you um, a bit of, you know, what's a safety net, really, if nothing else. So, um, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Exactly. And, um, you know, it was exciting. You know, I mean, my whole... Uh, my whole uh, ambition and focus was to get to Japan anyway, because from that at that point I was more inclined to want to do that as opposed to American wrestling anyway. Okay. I thought it was just a better fit for me. I, saw, ah. I just thought it was a better fit for me because I wasn't overly flashy or showy, you know. So I was more sport based, athletic. So it made sense. You know? <laughs> what were your expectations going over to Japan the first time, and uh, how long was that first tour? Did you say? Oh, well, it was interesting, really, because my expectation is they bring me in as a junior heavyweight because I was only, what, 220, 220 pounds at a time, six foot, 220. I thought, okay, I'm probably about the same size as, as their juniors. So, you know, I, I came in and, and the first day at a press conference, I did this whole speech about wanting to wrestle, you know, Marafuji and, and, and the other young boys at junior heavyweights they had. And then they go, oh, no, no, you're a heavyweight. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, you're a heavyweight. You know, I was like, oh, okay, brilliant. That was a, that was the first turn up for the books. Um, that first tour was a month or five weeks, which was pretty harsh, but uh, it was okay. I mean, I'm I used to it. I mean, they harsh look up what, to you, don't they? What way? Sorry. Harsh in what way? You're doing like five or six shows a week, you know, <laughs> for five weeks. <laughs> it just kills you, you know. <laughs> and you know, we're talking. I mean, most, you know, 90% of the matches, you are tag matches, but you're still going at it, you know, and then you've got to travel and then wrestle. And then, you know, you couple that with being in Japan, not knowing the culture, struggling to find decent food to eat, boredom because it's nothing to do. You can't watch television. And we're talking 2002 here. There's no internet in hotel rooms. It's just, it's just, you know, it's quite a, if you're not prepared for it, it's just you don't adapt well to situations and it can be quite tough, you know. Um, for me, the, the perfect tour length in Japan was about three weeks and uh, three weeks is about as much as I could muster back then and I was like, I want to go home now. 
did that uh, did that put you off Japan at all? No, no, not at all, not at all. You gotta you gotta you gotta appreciate that you have an understanding of what it takes to be a professional wrestler. You know what what you've got to do, um, and whether you like it or not, it beats you know sitting at a desk nine to five and and uh, and not experiencing the world and 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 and, and, and you know doing something extraordinary with their life isn't it so you appreciate that um and i was just grateful for the opportunity to be out there and, and, and working and you know earning decent money yeah i couldn't pull that back myself really i've i we've all had moments of course um where we're frustrated by this business but then you've kind of got to think to yourself that even in those frustrated worst days they're yeah. still better than the best days you ever had in any other job exactly exactly right yeah. Who else, who else pays you to travel around the world? And, you know what I mean? You get to see the whole world for, for pretty much for nothing. Oh, we get paid to do it. <laughs> yeah. Have you done with Noah in, in, in total? I think it was 27 tours in total over about seven years. So. Your, uh, your memory when it comes to dates and figures, I will say, Doug, is absolutely brilliant. I've done... I've done uh, these interviews with people uh, my age and trying to string two to three yes. years together with them remembering. I can't remember what I've done last week, Doug, so you remember some of these dates. I have no idea. I only know that because I recently had to apply for my Japanese visa, didn't I, to go to, you know, I did a show for them last year. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and on my visa application, I had to write down every time I'd been to the Japan before. So I had to dig out my old I mean, passports, find all my visa stamps and write them all down and it came to 27. So that's... <laughs> 27 different stamps that's how i do <laughs> you know otherwise yeah i probably wouldn't wouldn't have had a clue had you asked me out of that out of that run of nowhere what if you had to pick one what would have been your your favorite match you had when you were out there oh i had a i had a 20 minute time limit draw with Mar- marafuji on television that was probably my favorite match at their home base uh arena which was Dipper ariaki at the time um, just because it was, you know, we went 20 minutes. It was great atmosphere and a, and a great, um, you know, just a great match overall. I mean, and other highlights, like winning the tag titles with, with Scorpio was definite highlight. I mean, there's just so many of them. Um, it's been interesting because a, a lot of tours where I just, I, I want to say I did nothing, but I was just there, you know, like I wasn't pushed in any singles matches or any big title matches. I just came along and I just did my bit as the English, token English wrestler, which is fine. And, you know, it makes for an easy tour, but sometimes you want a little bit of a, you know, a little bit something different. Um, but when you do have those things, they do stand out. And it, it, it's, um, it's interesting. Having thought about that, probably the most uh, amazing spirit experience I did have was a non-wrestling experience in that I was there when Kabashi did his uh, big return after having cancer um, in front of a sold-out Budokan arena. And uh, I don't think I've ever experienced any noise. Like, the whole building was literally shaking and rumbling when he when he walked out. And that was probably the craziest thing I've ever experienced in wrestling as a whole, actually, I'd say. Just, you know, you just can't even fathom. the. It's not even a pop. It's not like, it was, you know, obviously there was a big explosion of noise when he... When he, he came through the curtain but it was just the whole rumbling of the whole building that was shaking just the, the excitement of the people to see him again you know I just you know and I was standing at ringside because I was you know I know you watch Japanese tapes you always have guys standing at ringside yeah you know like and I was down at ringside for 
whatever reason to clear away the ribbons or just just watch the match up close. You could go down if you wanted to. There's nothing, you know, they never stopped you. If you want, as long as you were wearing a tracksuit with Noah on it, you could go down and stand at ringside. So I think that's why I did. No, but it was it was quite a unique experience. Was it one of the moments where you kind of like it starts that rumble starts and you were just looking around at the place like and thinking, yeah. oh my god. Exactly, absolutely that. Like it's just you know, you kind of beyond belief really. And of course, just as the match goes on and it builds as well, it gets even more frenzied, doesn't it? You just I never I never experienced anything like it, you know. Did there ever again, because a lot of people talk about the kind of like the travel back back and forth, back and forth. Um, was there ever a, a moment where, or a time where you thought about moving over there full time? No, never to Japan. No. Was there a time then where you thought to yourself, "Okay, I've had enough of this then, all this travelling"? Not until, not until a lot later in my career. I never, I never got fed up with travelling because that was quite, quite. They, they structured my tours quite well. Um, it only occurred to me why they did this much later on in my career, but I used to do. Um, all my tours in succession over the winter months. So I do the October tour, November, December, January, February tour. Sometimes do the March and April tour. So I get, but I was guaranteed 20 weeks a year on my contract. Yeah, so they just put all of my tours together to cover that 20 weeks, which was great. So I did the whole winter in Japan, and then all the summer I could do Europe and wrestle over here independently or go to the states whatever I wanted to do. It was great. Um, but I never, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd come home for two weeks and I'd be back again. I'd come home for two weeks. But then it'd be six months before I was going go back there again, you know, after I'd done all my tours. So that, that never made it, uh, you know, never really made it, it, it monotonous for me or boring. You know, it was hectic when I had flying back for the four or five times I had to do it. But once it was over, I missed it during those six months I was home again. Um, and later on in my career, I found out the reason they probably did that was flights to Japan in the winter about half the price they are in the summer. So <laughs> <laughs> it cost them a lot less to fly me out there in the winter months. <laughs> there's there's always a financial reason I find in wrestling, always a financial reason. Isn't there just, yeah. <laughs> your first um time you worked with Doreen in two thousand six? Uh yes it was, yeah. Yeah. It's the only time I've actually had a dark match. Not the only time I've been there as talent, extra talent. That's the only time I ever had a dark match. Funnily enough. So, um, had you been there? Be had you been there before that dark match? I want to say that I had once before because that dark match was in Manchester. I think I was there at the London tapings the tour before, um, but they didn't use me. I was just. Can you remember? Can you remember how that came about? Because, again, uh, how it would come about nowadays would be very different to how it would have come back in the early 2000s. How my dark match came about? Well, just how uh, contact with Joey came about in general. Oh, yeah. Well, that was due... Uh, it was through Drew McDonald back then. Drew used to set up all the English guys for them. Um, so he just put a, a collection of guys' names down and they, they put them on the extras list and then they used who they fancied, you know, for that. Um, and I'll... Once you're on that list, obviously they just contact you directly from then on, see if you're available or not, you know, if you're around. Um, and nine times out of ten, I was not around. <laughs> <laughs> so they stopped calling me. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I did that dark match. I think I did two more from in 2007. Like two more two more bookings from I wasn't. They didn't use me in those times. And then, um, yeah, then it was just always they'd call me and I'd say, no, I'm in Japan, sorry. 
Was there any ever was there ever any interest from them in the, that 2006-2007 period? Well, in 2006, Tommy Dreamer was talent relations, and he was high. That, oh, that's why I got the dark match, because Tommy Dreamer was talent relations, and he saw my name on the list and said, use him in the dark match. And he wanted to he wanted to employ me, but I wasn't big enough, apparently. And, and, and bear in mind, I weigh 240 pounds, and I, I'm six foot in my boots, or five foot 11, really. And I wasn't big enough for him because they were looking for guys six foot two, weighing over two hundred and fifty pounds. Is Not all the agents like Adi Malenko and, and Ricky Steamboat and so oh yeah, you know it was, it was it was good, it was really good. You know, you don't know if they're blowing smoke up your ass or they're, they're telling the truth, but you know, it's it's for them to come up to me and say I didn't go and ask them. They were coming up to me, so that was that was nice. Um, and Tommy Dreamer said I did well, and and that was it. And then he just. I just never heard anything back. Well, I, I obviously heard back from him saying, are you available for this one? Are you available for this one? Um, but I never heard back in terms of a, a you know, a contract opportunity or anything. And asking Tommy Dream about it later, years later, he just said, yeah, yeah they didn't think you were big enough at the time. I was like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely crazy when you think about the scene and, like, again, people who are on Raw and SmackDown and stuff like that now. It's just yeah. like the whole thing has completely changed. They were they were after those monsters back then still. Well, they were, yeah, absolutely. It was just, that's all they were looking for, you know? That's all they were looking for. When did you start with uh, TNA, Doug? Well, way back in 2003, I was in America for Ring of Honor. And I was there probably two weeks or three weeks. So I had shows either weekend and nothing in the middle. So TNA called me, and they because they were running Wednesdays in Nashville at the fairgrounds. And... Uh, um, they said, oh, do you want to come down and do do a show on the Wednesday? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. So I came down and I did a dark match for him against James Storm, funnily enough. I remember it because they said, oh, yeah, you've got eight minutes. You've got eight minutes. I said, oh, okay, that's all right. So we put our match together, blah, blah, blah. We're talking. Um, I get to the curtain. And Bill Behrens is standing there because he's obviously agent, producer. Whatever. He goes, oh, you've got three, you got three minutes. I was like, what? So I walked out and I was like, okay, they've cut my match here. James is going over, obviously, because he's a contract guy. So I ended up just beating the hell out of James for two and a half minutes, and then he pinned me. <laughs> All of his offense before that, I was like, I'm not, I'm not giving him anything here. Um, and and they, they, were, they were happy enough, you know, they, they were fine with that. And then um, they wanted me for that. They did, um, they did doing the World Cup, weren't they? Is that what it was called? World Cup or something? Yeah, it was. Um, and they wanted me and Jody and Johnny to go over and do that, and we couldn't do it because we had FWA commitments. Um, so it was the next time I heard from them, and I turned them down on that. Um, and then it was 2008 was the next time when they did their first... No, they didn't do their first tour of the UK. 2008 is when they brought me in. Now now I'm getting fuzzy with the timeline, Sorry. I've picked you up now. I've put pressure on you. Apologies. You have, yeah. yeah. 2000, no, 2008 is, is when they did their first UK tour. Um, and that's when I signed a contract with them. And then I didn't actually start with them until the next year, in May 2009, when my contract was already up for a year. What? Were you on a retainer for them at that point as well? Uh, no, it was just on a, it was on a, per, it was a paper appearance, you know. But it was for a duration of a year, you know. We'll pay you whatever amount for every appearance you make for us. And um, they didn't use you at all? <laughs> no, I mean, they used me for the UK tour, which was, what, four dates? And then, yeah, they just 
and then it came around for a renewal and like, oh yeah we want to renew your contract we've got something for you now and we're going to bring you in for every tv and and i was like okay cool um and then terry taylor phoned me up and goes oh we we've just we've just we've just put um we've just uh taken on uh this guy nick aldis do you know him i said yeah yeah I was he goes, yeah so uh, we're gonna put you in a tag team with him i was like okay that's cool as long as i get used i don't really care you know <laughs> But yeah, I, that's it. It was uh, because I, I I do know this happened though. They signed me in, in June two thousand and eight. I did the UK tour. And I said to them, I've still got contracted tours for Noah at the end of this year that I need to do. And they go, that's, that's fine. Um, but actually, thinking about it, to be fair to TNA, my last tour for Noah was February two thousand and nine. So they probably just sat me because they were waiting for my t- Noah tours to end. I did my last tour for Noah in February 2009. That started with TNA properly in May 2009, three months later. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, to be fair, when I told them I had these tours, they probably thought, oh, it's not worth using him for this this, this year. We're not going to get anything out of him because he's going to be away for three or four months of it. So you were kind of brought in and did the the British elite angle out and said 2009 was, you said, Yeah. yeah? Yeah. How did you adapt from kind of like, being uh, being in Japan so much and kind of being on those indies now kind of being thrusted into what really did end up being quite a prominent TV role uh, cool. on weekly TV. Cool. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't even I don't even remember it being particularly a, uh, a challenge in any respect, other than the weirdest part for me was is is is. I don't know if you've experienced this, but doing TV matches as they were with TNA, but you just cut out all your selling because they give you such a short amount of time and you just end up running a match like all moves. And it was just that element of trying not to sell too much and tell too much of a story because you haven't got the time to do that. And that's what really kind of threw me a little bit. Um, you know, with TV, when it came to pay-per-view, it was a different story. You could work proper matches. But uh, doing that, working to the cameras mainly, which... You know, I adapted to quite easily, to be honest with you. That that came that came quite easy. Um, and obviously, they had six sided of the ring as well, which is always difficult to, to get your head around sometimes. You talk about those TV matches. Yeah, again, I, I've I've definitely felt that again. Time the times you're given, you kind of you want to make sure the match is interesting and exciting. And I've yeah. definitely been there before, where you your mentality is you take something. Okay, I've got a sell, I've got a sell, and then before you know it, then you've got like two minutes left and then you've got to figure out then where you've got to cut something or where you've got to kind of like, okay, where are we going with this? Or are we going to try to shove seven minutes worth of a match into a two minute match? Yeah. Or yeah. So I definitely know exactly what you mean when it says to trying to get that, trying to figure out that TV style. That's a lot faster and a lot choppier. That's it. That's it. The, the British elite and kind of the group itself. It wasn't just you and Nick, was it? No, there's Rob Terry as well. as our kind of enforcer guy. So how did you again? How do you find yourself fitting in into that group? Because again, I know you're all you're all British, but yeah, yeah. you all would have been very very different in your your styles and approaches to to wrestling. Yeah, well, my the primary reason for me being in the group was to teach the other guys how to work properly. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who was structuring the matches and putting them together and working the majority of the match and. It was just a learning experience, the other two guys. And I understood what my role was. I knew what I was doing. 
there. That's why I was. That's why they put. You know, that's why they put me in that position. And it was fine. It was fine. And I, I think if you speak to both of them, they'll say they learned quite a lot from even just watching me or listening to me and what I was doing. You know, so that's fair. That's fair enough. Um, I didn't. Feel, I wasn't no pressure on me to be a body guy. So you know, a lot of my training was more cardio based and functional as opposed to trying to get jacked. Hopefully. <laughs> well, you can you can try to get jacked as you want, but when you go stab next to Rob Terry, I don't think that's happening. Unfortunately, there's no like, point, is there? No? <laughs> um, I remember that again. I could be completely wrong with this, but I remember there being some uh, dispute with the IWGP tag belts. You guys picking them up, and the, I remember again. I could be wrong with this about it not being recognised as you guys being champs. Can you remember yeah. any of that? No, you're you're right. You're right. What happened is there is that they. TNA booked us in a double tag title match where uh, Team 3D held the TNA tag titles and the IWGP tag titles at the time. And they booked us, I think, in a four-man, sorry, four-team double title match where both titles were on the line. But, like, the first four was for the first titles and the second four was for the next titles. And they didn't bother telling New Japan this. And then they put us over to win the IWGP tag titles. In fact, maybe even both sets of titles, I can't remember now, but they definitely put us over to win the IWGP titles and New Japan were not happy about it at all. But I think there was more heat on the Team 3D for agreeing to, to do that as, a, as opposed to us, you know? Um, and then begrudgingly, New Japan recognised us for briefly and then we lost the belts back to Team 3D anyway and it's carried on as... as a, always had plans but yeah it didn't seem like it was and like me and Nick were like are you sure this is okay you know we were like questioning it and been through so it's like ah, don't worry about it it'll be fine <laughs> and we're like okay you know because obviously we were worried about our own careers you know what it means especially with you kind of having those relationships in Japan as well I guess you just didn't really want to kind of rock the boat anywhere I don't think there's any love lost between New Japan and there anyway <laughs> yeah it's very, very true yeah you know you said that <laughs> But it gives me a dubious title, which I think I'm unique in holding, in that I seem to be the only person in the world who has held two major tag team titles and never defended them in Japan. Because I, we won, me and Scorpio won the NOAA, the GHC tag titles in Japan, but then we lost them in England. and We, we never defended them in Japan. <laughs> and then the IWGP tag titles, I never, well, we never even got to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a dubious distinction I think I, I hold. You know? I do like that as a fact, to be fair. Though. That could be something that <laughs> anyone who's listening now could be chucking this in their house party quizzes on the, on Friday. They could. They could. Yeah. You kind of talk about being the mentor in uh, in British Elite. You did have like a period where you were in uh, Fortune. What was your... Can you remember how that was pitched to you and what your role was in Fortune? Oh, I don't know. It's just... Um, uh, I think what Russo wanted to do was put as many top level heels in one in one group and then have this all you know all conquering group that um that kind of ruled the roost on the on the on the uh, on the heel side but um the problem was like there was four guys in in fortune already and that kind of lent itself to the name you know like um beer money um uh, AJ and Someone else, I want to say Kaz, Kazarian, Frankie Kazarian. Yeah. And they kind of tacked me and Matt Morgan on. 
as additions and, and, and it always just felt like it didn't really work when there were six of us. It was all very cluttered, you know, trying to get interview time and trying to push your way and get say stuff and always felt the other first four didn't feel like we sh- they should be, you know, I'm no offence to them or I haven't got any grudge with them. I understand perfectly. If I, if I formed a, a group of four guys and it was working quite well, I'm thinking, why are they putting two more guys that we don't really need in this group? You know what I mean? And that's how it always kind of felt to me, like was happening. But yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah, it was fun to be part of that and work with Flair. So it was all right. <laughs> you talk about Vince Russo again. Uh, it seems that everyone has polar opinions when it comes to Russo, either one side or the other side. How how did you find uh, working with Russo? Yeah, I had no problem with him only because he is probably the only person who's written anything for me that. That, that's more than just being a technical wrestler. You know, he, he actually came up with some, you know, kind of storyline and, and basis for something for me to do, which, you know, followed through on. And it, and, it, and and because of that, because I did what he asked and I, I made it work, then I became, you know, he became a fan of me and he wanted to use me more and more. And um, Unfortunately, it became a detriment later, which we'll get on to in a minute. But at a point where he was head writer, it was great, you know, because then he'd always make sure I was on TV and always give me TV time and always give me pay-per-view time and, and you know, and utilise my character. So that, for me, was, was good, you know. Regardless of what anyone says, his interest was getting guys over and, and, and running good programmes with them and making sure they got TV time. You can't fault him for that. Why did you say it become a... How did it become a detriment, you were saying? Because he... Because if you're talking... Because when he lost power and, and, and other people took over the booking... If you were deemed to be one of his guys, I think then you were you were destined to uh, be lost in the shuffle. I think, unfortunately, um, you know, it just three main guys that, that kind of on my side or such all got fired or, or let go at the same time, and then that's where that's where I kind of ended for me. Unfortunately, were right. you were you living uh, in America at this point? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Moved in 2010 to America. When did you become the? Uh, you were, were you training OVW? Uh, training OVW at the time as well. No, I did that. I lost. I had the run with the X Division title in 2010. I lost at the end of 2010. I had a very quick run with the TV title. Uh, to 10 to 11, um, then I lost that to Abyss, um, and then they basically had nothing for me, so they sat me at home. <laughs> for about nine months. And then when I started complaining that I wasn't being used, um, they sent me to OVW to be a trainer. Before we get before we get into that, you talked about the X Division run and the, the, the TV title run. Yeah. Are there any standout matches you can think about that you really enjoyed or, you know, payoff feuds that you did during that time? Yeah, well, I love my feud with... Um, well, I, I liked them all, really. When I was the X Division, I, I had a good match with uh, Frankie Kazarian... I wrestled Brian Kendrick, which was always fun and amusing for me because he was so out there. Um, and then, obviously, I wrestled Jay Lethal, and we had some, some great matches up and down the card. It was, it was just a very consistent time for me. You know, I was out there doing, having good matches and just having fun with the character, which is so different to anything I'd done before, you know. Um, and then, obviously, in TV, the TV title, probably my best match in TNA was against AJ Styles when I beat him for it. Probably my favourite match. Um, during my whole time there. That was obviously a highlight. 
And yeah, he's got to be one of those guys, isn't he? One of the ones he was talking about that is just exceptional in the ring. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. Fantastic. Can't fault him at all. At all. But it's not just in the ring, is it? It's putting the match together as well and having ideas and imagination and creativity, you know? Just all of those things together just, just makes a hell of a performer. You talk about moving you uh, after you being not used to nine months and being moved then out to OVW um, as a trainer. Uh, did you en- uh, did you enjoy training? Do you enjoy training people? Because again, I know there's there's a lot of people that absolutely love it, and some people say that they enjoy it more than actually wrestling. And there's some people then that don't don't enjoy it at all. So where do you stand on that, Doug? It's interesting. I mean, there's two parts to this question. I'll, I'll answer the first one. Is that they called me a trainer? But essentially, I wasn't because all I was doing was they had trainers there already. They had the OVW trainers. They had a guy that did the basic class, they had a guy that did the intermediate, and they had a guy that did the advanced classes. Um, and I was basically there to keep an eye on the contracted talent, TNA contracted talent, and ensure that they were getting decent training and to contribute to their training, you know, just by watching what they were doing and giving them ideas and things like that. But aside from that as well, I was agenting most of the OVW shows and helping write TV. And for me, that was much more interesting than any training regime that, that, that they did or did not want me to do. Um, I got a lot more, because it was help, It was part of what I call, you know, it was, it was um, building my experience. It was, you know, it was furthering my career by learning things I hadn't really experienced before. And that was, that was very useful. Um, in respect to training, I mean, I don't mind training guys, but I'm much more someone who can help develop someone who's already got to a certain point and wants to bring it on a little bit more, tweaking and giving them suggestions and working on psychology and getting themselves over rather than just showing people the basics over and over again. You know, you have to be a very patient, um, a very a distinct kind of trainer in order to, to, to do that and, you know, have the patience with all sorts and all all abilities in order to mould them into a, you know, to understanding the basics. I'm not really probably haven't got that kind of patience <laughs> you're more of a you're more of a finishing school i guess yes that's exactly right that's exactly what i am yes yeah you know i can i can watch matches and i think oh, okay the mechanics are good but they could do this here or they can prove this bit here this would mean so much more if they had done this before you know it's just i don't want to say picking things apart but it's just adding things and giving people little tips to help them improve and you know maximize their uh, reaction from the audience or get themselves over better or, or whatever it might be you know it's just it's just little things really that a lot of people seem to forget or pass them over um for whatever reason you know it's 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 um it's always things that only people can see from the outside and they have to feed that back and then you have a better understanding of when, when to do things and why well, we talk about development. Uh, doing this, like the space of those ten years, ten, fifteen years, you would have been like back and forth, Britain. You still would have been like applying your craft here. And while like you were off internationally and kind of coming back, this scene would have been like developing and really thriving. Can you remember a point where you kind of had gone away and you came back and then kind of came back to the Indies and there was like a big surge and things had changed a little bit? Oh yeah, God. the only time that happened is I was exhibition champion and I was over here in 2010, did a few indie shots, you know, with TNA's blessing, defending the belt. And I went back and I didn't come back to England until 2013 after I'd been released. And the difference then was astounding. Within those three years, 
the, 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 the level of the shows, the shows being run and the talent on the shows was, was just, I don't know, it was night and day. It was the guys, same guys as 2010, but they were three years better, generally. <laughs> you know, they're three years more advanced and it, it, it showed so greatly in the quality of the shows that, that were happening. Um, and obviously, from that to that point now, 2013 onwards, it's just it's just got better and better, isn't it? So, yeah, you, interesting. Can you remember just kind of like, can you do you reckon you have a, a theory behind why that surge happened or why it got better? Because again, I spoke to a few people and asked this question, and a lot of people gave them different answers. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering, as you as somebody who was on the outside and then coming back to it, do you have any kind of like reasoning or inkling again why it got that good that quickly? Well. well I mean, I think there was a proliferation of schools opening up in mid-2000, so there's a lot more people training to be wrestlers. Um, and just by statistics alone, a lot more actual talented guys would be discovered and would move on. And then obviously, if you take that five, six, seven, eight years down the line, all those guys are then polished veterans in the prime of their careers, and they're working, they're working shows. So the quality is there because... The, the sheer volume of people coming into the business five or six, seven, ten years earlier was much greater than it had ever been before. So the pool, you know, the total pool, talent pool you had was much greater. Um, but I also think that a lot more promoters who are younger, more tech savvy, and a greater understanding of the benefits of social media when promoting their shows um were also kind of coming of age then started moving away from being fans and actually wanting to run shows a lot of those guys started developed at the same time you had all these younger promoters starting up which weren't necessarily there before because a lot if you go back 10 years to so go back to 10 years from 2013 to 2003 a lot of promoters then were still older the older generation step forward 10 years 2013 you've got a lot of younger generation of promoters who promoting to a totally different audience using new techniques and and it was starting to work for them so i think it's a combination of both those things really can you remember kind of taking a book in and and you know coming to a show and expecting it to be like a lower level and then walking in and kind of seeing it with something else or the crowd being completely different can you remember or anything stands out about that yeah i did funnily enough i did one show in scotland and it was I mean, I can't remember who the promoter was. Or I know all I remember, all I knew, all I can remember from the show is I was wrestling Joe Coffey, who I I didn't even know who he was at that time. And I, I, I arrived at the show and I went backstage and we were talking, we went for a match and everything. And it was time to go out. I stepped out to the curtain and it's like a thousand fans, and I was like, but I didn't realise because I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't, you know, I must have got to the show late because I hadn't bothered going to Gorilla Precision, hadn't bothered going to the ring, checking any of that. Yeah, so I must I must have turned up, rocked straight into the dressing room, got changed, worked my match out, and then I walked straight to the ring. I was like, what the heck? I was just totally blown away. I was expecting some small community hall show, and it was a massive, you know, whatever it was, uh, sports centre or leisure centre or whatever, with a thousand fans. I was like, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> What's going on here? I, 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 yeah, I do. I specifically remember that, that, that time. Um, and uh, that I think a couple of Rev Pro shows, earlier Rev Pro shows I did at York Hall, I was thinking, are they going to draw at these things? And then they'll turn up and there'll be 1,500 people there. And I was like, this is this is madness. There's, there's obviously something going on here and, and people are doing something right. <laughs> Again. We talk about kind of like that then. Were you, 
when you come back from America, were you again still full time professional wrestling, or had you dabbled back into into work life other places? No, I, was, I mean I was I came back from America and I was full time for about a year, and then I started. Yeah, I, I took a job again just because I didn't think I was going to be. I was thirteen, two thousand thirteen. So I was forty one. Forty one. Yeah, I was forty one. So I didn't think I'd probably at that point. I was thinking I'm not going to get another main. You know, I'm not, not going to get another permanent contract here. Any description? Um, no, I weren't looking at any foreigners at that time. They were kind of you know keeping very insular, so they weren't offering anything. So yeah, I just I just went back to you know working full time and and doing and wrestling at the weekends again, yeah, which was kind of fun. <laughs> so the the idea and the kind of like realization that you were you were gonna you were gonna look at retirement, where did that come from? Did you did you have the idea and it keep the progress and did you approach them? Yeah, well, I was. I mean, my plan was kind of to retire in 2018 anyway. At the end of that year, because you know, I had a lot of injuries and uh, it just, you know, whatever age I was, 46, was I 47, I think, 46, right? I was 46, I thought, I've probably done enough as I want, as, you know, I've done as much as I can do now, um, so it's probably a good year to, if you know, slow down, if not retire. Um, and I've spoken to Progress about another, another angle. Um, which I can't really remember what it was about. Off the back, I did a Radio 2 appearance um, talking about British wrestling and resurgence of British wrestling or whatever. Um, and I spoke to Progress off the back of that. And then I approached them. I said, listen, I'm, I'm planning on retiring this year anyway. Do you want to make it into some sort of storyline? And they were, they, they were well up for it. You know, they were very, very interested in that. Um, and I said, well, we can we can do it for the Wembley. I know it's a few months short, but we can do it for the Wembley show if you like. And uh, you know, anything I, anything I do after that, I'll just say I was you know, I was contractually obliged to do it. <laughs> you know, so uh, that, that I mean that's how that came about because that was always my plan. 2018 was the was the people that you wrestled in that lineup were the were the people were they people that you picked or was it like a, a combination of both progress and yourself for progress. Uh, yeah, for progress, the build-up to that and the storyline that went into it. Um, I mean, they, they came up with storyline. They they chose the people who are wrestling. Yeah, there wasn't... I didn't have... To, you know, I mean, I obviously said, oh, you're wrestling this guy. Is that okay? And I said, yes. I didn't say no to anybody. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it was interesting. It was, you know, unique, and I enjoyed doing it. After you after you kind of, like, you've done that retirement and you kind of, like, you've, you've said, okay, I'm going to run up to the end of the year and it'll be done and dusted. Of course... <laughs> We are now in 2020, and outside of the UK, you are you do still do the odd appearance. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. again? How again has that come about, or what's the what's the thought process behind that? Um, the main one was injuries clearing up. Like I had neck uh, neck treatment or neck surgery in, in 2019, which you know resolved quite a lot of problems. Um, my general health's better. Um, I think really the decision to do, I mean, I do the occasional shows, but it's places I want to go, you know, like Tokyo, obviously in Japan and uh, Ring of Honor, you know, <laughs> once I get there, you know, <laughs> offered me do a, a few little bits and pieces. It's just, just, 
you know, going to meet guys that I've known for years and, and just doing a few things I want to do. And I, I think one of the things for, especially in America, is I don't think I left there on the best of terms at the end of my TNA run. And it'd be nice to go back and just put a little exclamation point on that element of my career and say, you know, hello, American wrestling fans. You remember, you know, that I was actually quite decent. And uh, just, keep, just, just leave them with decent memories of me rather than perhaps forgetting, <laughs> as I think they might have towards the end of my TNA run. Um, so that's a little bit of my motivation there, really, for especially you know for some, doing some things in America. Um, yeah, that's that, that's basically it. Um, in respect of England, really, I mean, I just I want I'm kind of resolute in staying retired here because I've done everything in this country, and I don't really want to be travelling every weekend up and down, driving my car and. You know, and and, and, and and wrestling really, it's not what I want to do. I just want to, you know, relax most of the year and, and, and live a life home with my family. And then I'll just do the occasional ones abroad, you know, when they, when they come along. Um, you know, it's like if the floodgates were open, if I took one, one in this country, I'd have everybody bringing me up saying, you want to do this one? Do yeah, yeah. Once you say yes to one, it's hard to say no to others. Well, yeah, you know, and you know, uh, money is a factor as well. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not being funny, but you know, Ring of Honor paying me probably four or five times what I'd get in this country for a show. So, not sound mercenary about it, but there we go. <laughs> no, no I mean, again, it makes total sense. Is like you and the way you say it as well. Like it sounds like the other things you're doing, like America-wise and anything that's kind of European, it does sound a bit like Doug Williams wrestling roundup. Like you are kind of like just kind of finishing up little bits and pieces and kind of going out the way that you wanted to go out now that your neck is fine and not not the way that you kind of felt like you were being forced to kind of stop. That's it, that's it, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, Doug, how I usually like to uh, round these up then is if you were to uh, go back and give yourself any advice, so if you could like kind of time travel back and speak to your former self when you started and give yourself advice, or if you could give advice to any new wrestlers coming into wrestling right now, what would that advice be? Oh, it'd be different advice, actually. I think I'd tell myself not to... Um... It's interesting, really, because do you take the risk or not? But I would have advised myself not to sign the TNA contract and stuck with Japan another year, um, knowing other things that were coming about. I, I, I should have done that. <laughs> so I'd probably have told my, my, my younger self to just hold on another year and, and you'd be better off. Um, without trying to sound too cryptic about that. Um, in respect to wrestlers coming in now, it's really just, I always say it's the same thing, isn't it? Get your basics down and get your, your character and work as many shows as possible, get as much experience as possible. You want to be reasonably rounded and, 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 and you know, have kind of confidence in yourself and knowledge before you try and make any step into any kind of, big league environment where you're going to get eaten up and gobbled up and spit out. You've got to give yourself a bit of confidence and a bit of knowledge and, 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 and present yourself in the right way. And you can do, you only learn those things through experience and, and working all the time and working the independent shows. And you know what it's like. You, you start small and you do gain that confidence. You do come comfortable in your character and then you do get noticed and you do build it up over time. You can't just jump from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, it doesn't work like that. And then you're destined to fail. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to say anyone I have seen that have have jumped onto those big shows before they're ready have failed. They have like kind of I've seen them on big shows and then six months later they're nowhere or they're they're struggling down on smaller shows trying trying to find that big platform once again. And yeah, yeah, some of them do, some of them do kind of go away and they do, uh, they come back and usually when they come back, they've had to really work for it and they're better wrestlers. But again, yeah. I think the best thing you could possibly be is underrated because if you're underrated, the only place you can go is up. If you're overrated, the only place you can go is down. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, just listening to yourself and not necessarily listening to others around you. You know, and, uh, being your own worst critic is always is always a good good starting point, I find. Not believing the hype, you know. <laughs> to a point. Definitely. Well, Doug, um, it's been absolutely fantastic and I'm really glad that we finally got to uh to sit down and have a chat. Again, I wish it was face to face and I wish it the world wasn't the way it is right now, but uh I'm really glad that we finally got to sit down and chat, mate. Yeah, me too. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank- and can I just say as well that out of all my guests, you're like, what, this has been, you're probably like the 107th guest, really, if I add tag teams I've had on and stuff like that. Um, right. You are the one that has the best recollection for dates and times and places <laughs> out of anyone I've ever met. <laughs> oh, that's good. No, good, good. It's quite easy. Well, it's not easy for me, but my, my, my career my career's got quite defined stages to it. So that probably helps a little bit as well. <laughs> Thank you're you. Like, but no, Doug, that's been absolutely great. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Okay, no problem, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you. How good was that? Mr. Doug Williams, with the encyclopedic memory of no man I've ever met before or had on the podcast. That's 102 episodes, and I still believe that he has a better date and reference and time than anyone I've ever had on the podcast. And again, 102 episodes and I'm yet to repeat guests. I guess you could turn around and say that I did have Robinson and the Swords and I did have CCK and Chris Brooks, but I'm not counting those because I guess they were two different entities in themselves. So yeah, 102 episodes, no repeats. I'm going to try to continue to do that as long as I can. And then I'll probably start getting some of your wrestling favourites back. But uh, yeah, fantastic to sit down with Doug, listen to him talk. And uh, do you know what? It's such a weird one because Doug, of course, there is an age gap. And Doug's someone who's always been the most utmost professional when I've met him. And of course, the last couple of years when I've been around Doug, he's been winding down from his career. And you often do wonder to yourself if, if he got into this business because it was something else. Or, you know, he had like a judo background, I know. And you think to yourself, maybe he got into it some other way and he was able to kind of make money from this and he stayed in it. But it really is nice to sit down and chat with some of these guys that you, again, I've known Doug for a couple of years now, but never really had an in-depth conversation with Doug like that. And it was really nice to kind of hear that when he was, you know, breaking out and when he was getting into the business, he was as full as much passion as myself and others that I was surrounded with. And I continue to be surrounded with down at the Dragon Pro Wrestling School when they're coming into the business. So it really is great to kind of hear him talk about that and talk about how fond he is of wrestling. And also as well, like, I know a lot of people have said, well, okay, you retired, so why are you still why are you still wrestling? Why are you still doing this? And I think, like, the fact that he is saying, like, yeah, I am winding down, but I feel like I was able to kind of finish up British wrestling the way that I wanted to. 
but there was a lot of other stuff in my career, like Japan and especially America. And he speaks a lot about America, about how he feels like he never got to kind of sign off the way that he wanted to sign off. And I think that's such a cool thing to say, isn't it? It's, you know, some people can be, some people can think, you know, and judge about people retiring and then not fully retiring. But at the end of the day, it's his career. He can do what he wants. And I think the fact that he's decided that he's stepped out from British wrestling on his own terms in one of the biggest, if not the biggest, independent wrestling show in England uh, since the World of Sport era. And he's then gone, okay, that was it. I bowed out in a great place. Um, fantastic. But you know what? When it came to Japan and when it came to America, I don't feel like I was fully finished. And I feel like I would not be fulfilled as a wrestler if I wasn't able to bow out in the way that I want to bow out. And I think that's that's absolutely fantastic. And real credits to him as a professional and real credit to him as someone who loves to create uh, wrestling. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, I will say this, though. Um, this is usually where I say, hey, I, I want to get I want to get dug on uh, in the next year or two and see what he's doing. But I guess that's a little different and a bit weird considering um, he is winding down and this is done. But I hope in some retrospect fact that he maybe finds uh, something within the wrestling field, maybe ends up becoming an agent or he becomes, uh, you know, backstage some work within the backstage the word escapes me but yeah it would be great to kind of sit down with Doug in two years time and for him to tell me that he's found this another thing that he's doing within wrestling that he absolutely loves and he's feeling fulfilled and he's feeling that it now fills the void of the wrestling that he's finally tapered off so yeah hopefully I get to sit down with Doug Williams in a year or two's time even though of his career over and we look at something else that he's doing now in the twilight of his wrestling career and he's moved on to something else and it's something that he absolutely loves, and it's something that's uh, that's really filled him with passion, and he's uh, really really good at. It. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully I can do that. Big thanks, uh, Doug, for uh, coming on the show. Really appreciate it, mate. Uh, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please be sure to rate, subscribe, review, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Podbean, wherever any good podcast it's on all that. So yeah, again, please please be sure to do that. Um, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please be sure to make sure you like, you retweet everything and like the stuff that's on my on my Facebook page. Again, that allows people to see it. Uh, uh, there could be someone who, you know, was into British wrestling and maybe tape it off a little bit. And you never know, this could be someone you give the retweet and somebody then sees the word Doug Williams and they go, hey, wait a second, I used to, I used to like British wrestling. Maybe they listen to this podcast and then maybe they go, hey, I'm going to check out some more of Flash Mogul Webster stuff. And eventually then we've got ourselves somebody who's stepped away from British wrestling and is now loving it once again before by the time this all comes back full circle and we end up able to wrestle again so yeah please be sure to like and retweet and do all that stuff on twitter um again send out those tweets i love seeing those tweets and try to retweet them as much as i can at flash underscore morgan on the twitter uh facebook it's facebook.com forward slash flash morgan webster so find that post give it a share tell your friends all about it again could be somebody who used to love british wrestling somebody who knows nothing about it and just decides to download the podcast and we got ourselves a new fan um, or you know, on Instagram stories at Flash Morgan Webster. Again, I try to share them as much as I possibly can. So please be sure to do that. And if you do want to send me uh, an email, um, I am flashmorganlive.co.uk. I did say at the start of the podcast as well that I have got an issue at the moment where I'm not classified or in the category of wrestling on my podcast. And I would love to be able to sort that out. So if anyone knows a way of me being able to do that, um, then please drop me an email and explain because there's probably someone out there that's definitely more tech savvy in the podcast world than I am. That would be absolutely great. So again, that email is flashmorganatlive.co.uk. Thanks, people. 
yeah um i guess that wraps up another week i hope that uh, everyone is staying safe i hope that this has been a really good distraction for everyone um i'm about to go and stand in the rain for an hour probably an hour hour and a half however long my asda waits uh there are other supermarkets available but if my asda wait goes um i've been trying to put this off the last couple of days but we are now down to bare bones essentials in the house so i am gonna have to go for um a trip to asda and unfortunately it looks like i've picked a day which is raining and i'm gonna have to stand outside in the rain waiting for them to let me in which again i'm not complaining i understand exactly why we're doing it um and hopefully um i can run through some other podcasts and i can find a podcast that i can pop into my ears and i can listen to while i'm waiting in the queue so again i hope that while i'm now off to the supermarket to do my shop hopefully this podcast helps somebody else who maybe potentially is going to the supermarket to do their shop and uh, helps them distract it or anything you're doing because i know at the moment it can be a very anxious time so hopefully uh the chats and discussions and the gatherings really are helping people but yeah thanks for listening i really appreciate it uh especially time time is very valuable at the moment people can be doing lots of stuff so uh if if you if you're just choosing to do it to support the podcast fantastic if you're choosing to do it because it is helping you during this very anxious time then again um really appreciate you for choosing me and i hope that uh things get better and i hope you stay safe and i look forward to seeing you guys at a show and girls uh or or, or however you identify i look forward to seeing everyone at a show very soon uh when this is all over Stay safe, people, and uh, bye. Thanks for stopping by.